everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As always, I'm joined in the studio by my producer, Joel. And today we are covering a man by the name of John Bunting and a case known as the Snowtown Murders. Forewarning, this is probably one of the most disturbing episodes we've covered yet, honestly. And if you're squeamish at all, I would think twice about maybe listening to this episode and certainly do not eat while listening to this one don't because this one gets really dark and really graphic so i always like to just put that out there so you can prepare yourself for what's to come but this case is actually out of australia and the mastermind behind the snowtown murders is a man named john bunting and it honestly draws some comparisons to the fall river crew um, minus the satanic aspect to it but it is just as dark so if you've listened to that episode or watched that episode, you know how, how bad it gets. So that is what we're going to be diving into today. Before we get into that, though, a couple things. One, I wanted to let everybody know that we are going to be restocking the Candle Skull logo, both the hoodie, the long sleeve, and the t-shirt. So many of you have been asking for us to do that because you want to, you weren't able to get it and it's actually sold out, which is amazing. Thank you to everybody who yeah, has supported the show and bought merch we really appreciate it this was a super successful drop and yeah if you want to share your photos with us you can always tag us on social media joel tries to go and repost a lot of it to our instagram which is lights out cast as well as twitter it's always cool to see you guys repping the lights out gear but we will be restocking that i'm not sure on a date yet but i will definitely let you know also you know if you're not following us that's also where we put out a lot of our updates as well so make sure you're following us on social media also, this is this episode is going up on Black Friday, and my CBD company, Higher Love Wellness, as you know, is actually having our biggest sale of the year. We are offering 30% off everything on our site. That's higherlovewellness.com, premium CBD products made right here in Colorado, and we're going to be offering 30% off all of our oils, gummies, tinctures, wax, turp pen, all of the, all of the above will be 30% off. There's no code, so you just go to the website. You just add everything you want to your cart and you're going to see the savings right there. Also, this sale will be running from Black Friday all the way through Cyber Monday. So this will be Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, a four-day sale. This is the biggest sale of the year. So take advantage if you are interested in CBD or natural hemp extract products. But I just want to put that out there. Also, this episode is brought to you by Every Plate and Canva. So we are going to begin talking about the Snowtown murders by looking into the man who really masterminded everything, and that is John Bunting. So we start with the early life of John Bunting. John Justin Bunting was born on September 4th, 1966. Although with one quirk, he had no sense of smell. And lucky for him, he couldn't smell the bitter smoke of industrial plants that clouded the city he grew up in. His parents raised him in an Australian suburb called Inala, a poor city of migrant workers and military veterans. Cheap housing was set up near manufacturing facilities so the impoverished people who lived there could find jobs. A local police officer of Inala once referred to the city as a flea pit. When he was young, John would dig deep tunnels under his home until his dad made him stop because he had a fascination with the world of the buried. 
He watched construction workers install sewage pipes for the underdeveloped city, and his curiosity only grew. He wondered what else the underworld had to offer besides sewage and earthworms. In elementary school, he found an interest in science, specifically anatomy and chemistry, but his performance in school was often poor. He found a passion for silver iodide through his interest in chemistry, which stemmed from his interest in developing film photography, and he later found other everyday chemistry substances around the house or in local convenience stores. He gathered substances like hydraulic fluid, nitric acid, and chlorine. He would then capture spiders, which if you live in Australia, you know there are tons of spiders there, so it wasn't hard to find them. And then he would literally grab them and drop them into a bucket of poison, which were his homemade concoctions. He'd watch the spiders convulse in agony. Their legs twitched as they curled in pain until they became motionless and died. Intrigued by the torture and death of the spiders, he would find more and continue killing them in droves. But in 1974, John Bunting's life took a darker turn. At only eight years old, he was over at a friend's house when his friend's older brother lured them both into his bedroom. He began strapping his younger brother face down on the bed as John looked on in shock. When John looked at his friend, he saw a blank look in his eyes, as if this was just another day. He had clearly gone through this before, and he was too afraid to fight back. As John began to cry in fear, his friend's older brother walked over, towering above him. He pulled back his fist and swung it straight into John's mouth. John quickly drew back as blood began pouring from his split lip. The older brother then pulled him onto the bed and hogtied him face down next to his friend, and he pushed his face down into the mattress, muffling his screams as the older brother sodomized him. He did the same to John's friend, but his friend didn't scream or fight back. The abuse and the rape had been a regular occurrence in his friend's life, and he realized that fighting back only made the horrors drag on. The older brother then called his friends on the phone and told them to come over, saying, I've got these two conditioned. He untied them, but John kept quiet and didn't fight back or try to run. And when the friends arrived, they each took turns beating the boys and burning them with cigarettes. After hearing the commotion, the friend's father burst through the door and yelled at his son to let the boys go. And John quickly gathered his things and raced home where his mother stood in the kitchen with anger on her face, and she smacked him for being late. Noticing he was covered in bruises and welts, she yelled at him for getting into trouble. After a scolding, he ran to the bathroom where he put a wad of toilet paper on his anus. And when he looked at the toilet paper, it was covered in blood. His friend's brother had torn open his anus when he sodomized him, so he kept the toilet paper there until it stopped bleeding. He became so ashamed of what had happened, he didn't tell a soul. He couldn't believe what happened, and he couldn't believe he had participated in a homosexual act, willingly or not. The shame was too much, but he buried it deep inside where it manifested itself into hatred and disgust, not only towards himself, but toward others. In his teenage years, John got into Nazism, and his troubled past formed his deep hatred for gays and pedophiles. He didn't distinguish between the two, though, thinking that homosexuals and pedophiles were all the same. It became a fixation he would constantly talk about with his friends. When he was 15, he began dating a girl named Lisa, and after months of having unprotected sex, Lisa eventually became pregnant with John's child. 
Not much is known about the relationship, but that it ended by the time their daughter was born. They had joint custody over the child, but John never told his family about his daughter, and he wanted to keep it that way. Lisa and their daughter both fled to Britain, and John never saw them again. With no direction, John dropped out of high school and moved out of his parents' house. When he was 20, he found work in a crematorium. He placed dead bodies in insulated vats and burned them to ash. He found out that he was pretty good at the job, but management soon had to let him go since they didn't have the money to pay him. And that's when John began searching for work around Adelaide. Adelaide is South Australia's capital and also its largest city. It has a vast city center with easy access to water on the world's driest continent. Its vision was greater than its product, and by the late 1900s, the city of Adelaide had become a harbor for crime and poverty. Poor, prefabricated houses were built to the north, where many live on government assistance. Its layout seems bright and booming from a distance, but within its streets, violence and crime have plagued the city. Child abductions, domestic killing sprees, murders of teenage girls, dead bodies found mutilated and disemboweled, and serial killers before the term had even hit the mainstream have all come out of Adelaide. There was even a killing spree in the local zoo where two deranged 18-year-olds hopped the zoo fence and slit the throat of 64 animals. It was here in Adelaide where John felt like he was at home. He found a space to live with his friend Kevin Reed and Kevin's girlfriend in North Adelaide. To pay the bills, he found work at the South Australian Meat Corporation where he bragged about slaughtering animals for a living. He would cover himself in a plastic suit, hang cattle upside down, and slit their throats as the life drained out of them. His obsession for killing animals escalated, and one day he took his passion for killing animals out of the slaughterhouse. His roommate Kevin owned a little Jack Russell Terrier. John figured there was little difference between the animals in the slaughterhouse and the little domesticated dog that barked at the window. If anything, the risk of killing something he wasn't supposed to made it more thrilling. So he took the dog outside and slit its throat with a kitchen knife. And when Kevin came home and asked where his dog was, John suggested it must have run away. But really, the dog was dead, wrapped in a garbage bag and ditched on the far side of town. Outside of his work as a butcher, John took an interest in metalworking. So he enrolled in a local class to hone in on his newfound hobby. This is also where he met Veronica Tripp, a partially blind, illiterate single mother of one. Through welding masks, they locked eyes, and from then on, they were both excited to go to metalworking class so they could see each other. They quickly fell in love and rushed to sign their wedding certificate after only eight months of dating. And John, at 23 years old, married Veronica in September of 1989. Her teenage son, James, wasn't necessarily a package deal. With nowhere else to live, John and Veronica lived with Kevin Reed while they found other living arrangements for her son. And once they had saved enough money, John and Veronica moved into 203 Waterloo Corner Road in December of 1991. It was a small house in Salisbury North, a low-rent suburb of Adelaide. Each house was identical, one floor, two-bedroom households surrounded by cheap limestone walls. The properties were separated by rusty chain-link fences between fields of weeds. But John and Veronica didn't care if it was nice or not. They were just happy to have a place they could call their own. And through the pitfalls of blue-collar work, they felt like they were finally making it work. They made their nest in Salisbury and eventually met a few neighbors nearby. 
named Robert Wagner and Barry Lane. Robert had been a troubled kid who grew up in the northern suburbs of Adelaide. He was illiterate and struggled in school, while his stepfather was a strict disciplinarian who never approved of anything he did. He especially hated his stepson's bisexuality. After moving away from home and finally liberating himself from his father, Robert moved in with his current partner, Barry Lane. Barry was a crossdresser who also went by the name Vanessa. He formed a relationship with Robert when he was a preteen, and they grew close over the years. When Robert reached legal age, he moved in with Barry, and they lived down the street from John and Veronica, and after seeing each other in passing multiple times, they eventually became friends and spent a lot of their free time together. Mark Hayden also joined their social circle, although Mark was a man of few words, and not much is known about him other than he had a wife named Elizabeth Hayden. John became good friends with Robert and Mark, but he kept Barry at arm's length. But since he grew so close to Robert, it became impossible to avoid Barry. Whenever he had to introduce some of his friends to Barry, he would refer to him as a freak. And despite Barry and John not being as close as the others, they all gathered around John as their social leader. Both Robert and Barry didn't work, so they spent a lot of their time socializing with John whenever he was free. They would sit around his kitchen table as John planted the seeds of hatred and vengeance in their minds. They were all poor, uneducated, and easily influenced by John's charisma. He spoke of his hatred towards pedophiles, and Robert, Barry, and Mark fueled the flames. In 1991, Robert and Barry had kept a small but tight-knit friendship within the gay community around Salisbury North. Knowing the crossroads and speed bumps of growing up around people who didn't understand, they often reached out with friendship. They had befriended a 17-year-old boy named Clinton Trezice during his formative years. Clinton was known as a drifter, as his home life wasn't welcoming to his lifestyle. He wore orange nail polish and bright purple pants. He stuck out like a sore thumb and was always on the lookout for people who would accept him for who he was. Among the people who accepted him, John Bunting wasn't one of them. He watched Clinton from a distance while he visited Robert and Barry's house for social gatherings. And soon enough, Clinton began having a sexual relationship with Barry Lane, and John's disdain for homosexuals had only grown over the years. In John's mind, Clinton resembled something similar to the teenage boy that had sodomized him all those years ago. To John, homosexuals and pedophiles were one and the same. Clinton couldn't be trusted. Even more. He had to be dealt with. By August of 1992, John Bunting was ready to rid the world of Clinton Trezice, or as John called him, Happy Pants. So he invited Clinton over to his house for a seemingly friendly visit. He led Clinton over to his couch where the TV was on and they talked about the day and gossiped about their friends. All the while, John had grabbed a shovel from the other room while Clinton wasn't looking. He casually watched TV as John snuck up behind him, gripping the shovel tight between his hands. He looked at the back of Clinton's head, a ripe, round head with dark brown hair, and John swung the shovel straight into the back of his skull. He had struck him in such a way that not only the back of Clinton's skull was shattered into several pieces, but the front of his skull fractured as well. Clinton's body lurched forward and rolled to the floor. John then towered over him and continued swinging the shovel into Clinton's head. Like the spiders he had killed with poison, he didn't stop until Clinton became utterly motionless. 
He released every last bit of rage through every swing into Clinton's skull. So much so that he soon exhausted himself and dropped the shovel beside Clinton's body. He quickly called the landline at Barry and Robert's house and told them to come over soon. It was an emergency. John had no doubt his friends would help him. Their loyalty towards John was far more powerful than their relationship with Clinton. And if John had reason to kill him, they believed it must have been for a good reason. So with the help of Barry and Robert, they agreed to help John dispose of the body. Robert helped without question, but Barry had a frightful look in his eyes. They packed the body into Barry's car and hauled it about a 20-minute drive north of Adelaide to a rural town called Lower Light. In the middle of a field, they buried Clinton's body in a shallow grave. His body drooped into the pit. The back of his head deflated under a thick blood stain that had turned black under his matted hair. And with the same shovel John had used to kill him, he covered the body with dirt. And when the last hint of Clinton Trezise disappeared beneath the soil, all three of the accomplices returned home to Salisbury. Not many of Clinton's family members became worried when he never returned home as Clinton had a difficult family life through the years, and he bounced from foster home to foster home for most of his life. His brother assumed he was just sick and tired of everything, so he packed up and left for good. But Clinton's sister, Sherry, suspected something was wrong. She had called Clinton's apartment landline several times with no answer, and after weeks of not hearing from him, she visited his apartment, only to find that his rent had been terminated by the housing trust and no one had come to clear out his things. She was able to gain access to his apartment where she found Clinton's belongings scattered throughout the place. She had known him as a clean housekeeper, and the absolute mess that was strewn about the apartment didn't match her brother's nature. Half-eaten cans of beans sat on counters with droves of flies swarming the kitchen. Clothes scattered the floors, and couch cushions had been tossed across the living room. As Sherry looked around the apartment in horror, she knew something had happened to Clinton. But even then, it would take another three years before Clinton's mother finally filed a missing persons report. Two years went by and Clinton's body still hadn't been found. Most of his family and friends were convinced he had fled his old life and started a new one somewhere far away. Meanwhile, John Bunting hadn't killed anyone for two years. And as he held back his darkest desires, he met Elizabeth Harvey, an older woman who he had recently separated from her husband, Marcus Johnson. John's previous relationship with Veronica Tripp had ended, and although they were still legally married, they were out of each other's lives. And soon after John and Elizabeth began their new romantic relationship, she moved into John's house on Waterloo Corner Road, bringing two of her sons from previous marriages, Troy Ude and Jamie Velasicus. At a young age, both of the boys had been sexually assaulted by Jamie's birth father, and John quickly stepped into the role of father figure for both boys, especially Jamie, who was 14 years old. With John being 28 years old, he was old enough for Jamie to see him as a respected elder, but young enough to develop a like-minded friendship. He told Jamie to call him Uncle John, an endearing but respected title. And after building a close relationship with the boy, John brought Jamie into his inner circle of delinquents. And it was only a matter of time before Jamie fell into his social circle of friends, since John knew Jamie had been sexually abused by his father. John could see he had the same rage and disgust within him that the rest of them had. 
And once John proved to be the perfect role model, he was ready to test the waters. He was ready to see if he could mold Jamie's rage into action. So over the next few weeks, John would catch stray cats and dogs off of the streets. And he would bring Jamie to the backyard where he kept the animals. He would grab them by their scruff, and with a carving knife, he pushed the blade into their throats. Their blood pooled in the bucket below. All the while, John kept a close eye on Jamie to see his response. As he stood there watching John butcher the poor, helpless animals, Jamie knew this was a test, and he wasn't going to fail. He congratulated John after each kill. But the test wasn't that simple. John wanted to see how far he could push it. So after he killed the animals, he began skinning them. He carved the fur and flesh from their bones with no hesitation. And this didn't faze John in the slightest. And he wanted to make sure it wouldn't faze Jamie either. In the end, after the mutilation was through, Jamie passed the test. He now held a seat within John's inner circle, next to Barry, Robert, and Mark. And John's following grew by the day. And he now had a solid team of desensitized followers to help in his future plotting against the pedophiles of Adelaide. Within the following year, John had his next target. Not far from his house on Waterloo Corner, Ray Davies lived in a mobile home on Ghent Street. He had parked his mobile home in the backyard of where he used to live with his ex-girlfriend, Suzanne Allen. And after their breakup, he moved out back and she charged him rent. Ray was an intellectually disabled 26-year-old living on assistance and had nowhere else to go. One day in 1995, Suzanne Allen banged on Ray's door, screaming accusations that he had made sexual advances towards her grandson. Ray, confused and withdrawn, denied everything. Suzanne didn't believe a word he said, so she filed a report with local police. And through the grapevine of Salisbury North, she had heard of John Bunting's disgust for pedophiles. So in her fury, she reached out to John and told him everything. Little did she know she had just let the rage-filled bloodlust out of its cage. And John needed nothing more than an accusation. Whether Ray was innocent or not, his fate had already been decided. After some brief planning with his friend Robert, they were ready to take care of Ray. In December of 1995, both John and Robert lured Ray out of his mobile home. They then tied him up, gagged him, and threw him in the trunk of their car. They then took him out of town to a secluded area in the woods, where they beat him within an inch of his life. They punched and kicked his genitals, and bashed his head into the ground. Blood dripped down his face, and with each blow he lost all of his energy. He couldn't even muster the strength to try and wriggle out of his bindings. After the beating, they put him back in the trunk and brought him to John's house on Waterloo Corner. John knew Elizabeth was home, and Robert wondered if that was going to be a problem but John knew he could easily coerce her into joining. Just like the rest of his group, John had brought in Elizabeth as well, and it didn't take long for Elizabeth to realize John's obsession with pedophiles, and over time she absorbed the same amount of hatred towards them. Robert and John dragged Ray into the house and dropped him in the ceramic bathtub in his bathroom, where they continued to beat him, and without hesitation Elizabeth joined them. John only had to say that Ray was a pedophile, and the rest was justified. Elizabeth then took a thick ceramic drill bit and plunged it into the side of Ray's leg. 
He screamed in agony and begged them to stop, but Elizabeth stabbed him several more times. Then Robert grabbed a pair of jumper cables from his car and wound them around Ray's neck. Blood dripped from his head, and he had been so battered that he couldn't fight back. Both Elizabeth and Robert grabbed either end of the jumper cables and pulled as tightly as they could. All the while John watching with intense pleasure. As the cables gripped tight around his neck, Ray slowly died, gasping for air with every bit of energy he had left. John and Robert then dug an 11-foot grave behind his house on Waterloo Corner and dumped the body of Ray Davies inside. A few days later, Suzanne saw John and Robert cleaning out Ray's mobile home, and no one seemed to care that Ray was missing. No missing persons report was ever filed, and Suzanne turned a blind eye when John and Robert took Ray's mobile home. They then painted it and sold it two months later. John had also stolen all of Ray's personal information and began collecting his government assistance checks. Since no missing persons report had been filed, Ray was still alive on paper, and not only had Suzanne turned a blind eye to what they did to Ray, but she also found a romantic interest in John. They then began having an affair soon after Ray's murder, keeping it secret from Veronica. John was still married to Veronica while living with Elizabeth, and also having an affair with Suzanne. John was a convincing man, and he knew how to manipulate the relationships of those closest to him. And if any of them pushed back, he knew just how to deal with them. By 1996, Suzanne's advances had become exhausting, and John couldn't keep up with the love letters and the attachment that was latching onto him. She wanted him to end his relationship with Elizabeth and finally be with her, but John wouldn't have it and the more she pushed, the angrier he became. Until one day, Suzanne mysteriously disappeared. Exactly what happened to her is still a mystery, but John had already gotten away with two murders. John claimed that he had found Suzanne dead from a heart attack, and since he wanted to collect her social security payments, he hid the body. John described it as a slice-and-dice operation. John and Robert dismembered her corpse with butcher knives, and threw the bloody pieces into garbage bags and buried them in his backyard next to Ray's corpse. Eleven separate bags were buried about five feet underground. At this point, John was unstoppable, and his confidence only grew by the day, and the police were still completely unaware. When one of Suzanne's family members filed a missing persons report, the police went to inspect her home, and what they found was similar to what Sherry found at Clinton's apartment. The place was trashed, and it looked like someone had ransacked the home. Cushions were overturned and Suzanne's belongings cluttered the floors. Her cats had been abandoned too, which was unusual since her family knew Suzanne to be an avid animal lover. After the disappearance of Suzanne, John claimed roughly $17,000 in her name. With all that extra money in 1996, John, Elizabeth, her sons, and one of Jamie's friends, Gavin Porter, packed up their things from the house on Waterloo Corner and moved to Murray Bridge, a town about 60 miles away. Their domestic life was as strong as ever, and they had built strong family bonds over the years, except for John and Elizabeth's son, Troy. Jamie eventually opened up to John and told him that his half-brother, Troy, had sexually assaulted him when they were kids. Since then, John had kept a level head, but never let Troy within his inner circle. Still, their domestic arrangement carried on, as usual. But on one evening in 1997, they sat around the TV and watched Australia's Most Wanted. 
and it didn't take long before the murder of Clinton Trezise flashed on the screen. The discovery of human remains strewn across a field by wolves had been the subject of the episode, and the body was identified as Clinton Trezise. The murder hadn't been solved in years, and the killer was still on the loose. And as they watched the show, John couldn't help but take credit for Clinton's murder he had committed five years prior. He boasted to Jamie about how he killed Clinton and buried him out in lower light with the help of Barry and Robert. John painted Clinton as a pedophile. And as he described the murder, Jamie looked at his Uncle John with pride. He wanted to be a part of his murder crew. Although they had moved so far away from the others, John still kept in close contact with his friend Robert. He would often call him on the phone and keep him updated on his potential targets, of which he had many. Within a room at his new house, John dedicated an entire wall to what he called his wall of spiders. The Australian slang term for pedophiles is rock spider. Similar to an evidence board used by detectives, John compiled a list of people and acquaintances he suspected to be pedophiles. He would write their names down on small notes and place them on the wall and connect them with threads. In a shroud of insanity, John had convinced himself that all homosexuals he knew were pedophiles and they all needed to be killed. He would often look through the phone book to find the numbers of his suspected pedophiles, call them up and harass them. He would accuse them of being child molesters and scream at them until they hung up. The list grew over months and months, and he added names upon his wall of spiders. But at the center of his wall was the name of Barry Lane. Robert and Barry had broken up the previous year, and John loathed him even more than usual. Barry had previously been accused of molesting a local boy in Salisbury North. And soon after, someone firebombed the home where Barry and Robert had lived. Robert, in fear for his safety and disgusted by the accusations, broke up with Barry. And John even became convinced that there was an underground auction of young boys being sold off to pedophiles. And Barry had connections to the auction and its participants. His intricate wall spiders grew by the day and long lines of red and blue wool threads connected the many names John thought were pedophiles. Many were only a few degrees of separation from John. He kept his friend Robert up to date whenever he found a new lead. But instead of following John's wall of spiders, Robert Wagner had more immediate problems. He had been dating a woman named Vicki Mills, and Robert had met her through a mutual friend of Jamie's, and they soon moved in together. They both lived in poverty while trying to make ends meet. And while they were at work, Vicky got an acquaintance, Michael Gardner, to watch her children while they were out of the house. Michael was a 19-year-old gay man who was open about his sexuality. He often wore cut-off shirts and painted his nails. After a bitter relationship with his stepfather and being sexually abused by a family friend when he was just 14 years old, Michael quickly moved out of his family's house. He then moved into the neighborhood of Salisbury North where he became good friends with Vicky. She met him through her cousin and both of them thought Michael was a nice young man who could be trusted, unlike so many other men in their lives. So Vicky trusted him to watch her kids. Of course, this didn't sit well with Robert. Although he was bisexual, he was disgusted by people who were openly homosexual. After all of the heated discussions he had with John, he also believed that all homosexuals were prone to pedophilia, especially the openly gay ones. One day in the spring of 1997, Robert and Vicky returned home to find Michael holding one of Vicky's kids and putting his hand over their mouth. 
Shocked, both Robert and Vicky couldn't believe what they had just walked in on, but Michael quickly explained they were just playing a game. Her kid had been running around the house and Michael was supposed to catch them, and he swore it was just innocent fun they were having. But of course, Robert didn't see it that way. He quickly assumed Michael was another pedophile trying to molest his girlfriend's kids, and no explanation could convince him otherwise. So after the incident, the first person he contacted was his old friend John Bunting, and he put Michael's name as a top priority on the wall. And then they waited until Michael's landlord, Nicole, who was also Vicky's cousin, went out of town for vacation in September of 1997. Michael agreed to house it for Nicole, and he told her that he would be moving to Goolwa when she got back. As Robert and John kept their eyes on Michael, the stars had aligned, and it was a perfect time to strike. After Nicole left, they went over to the house, lured Michael outside, and jumped him. They hogtied him with ropes and threw him into the back of the car, where they took him all the way back to John's house. They looped a rope around his neck and dragged Michael into the garage. With the rope tied tightly around his neck, he couldn't scream for help as Robert yanked him upwards on the rope that was cinched around his neck. And as he dangled by his neck, John tortured Michael by hitting him in the groin and the stomach repeatedly, all while calling him a disgusting pedophile. Michael struggled to resist, but there was nothing he could do. Every time he tried to slouch towards the floor to defend himself, Robert would pull on the rope and hoist him upwards by the throat. The torture and beating continued until every last bit of oxygen was cut off from Michael's brain. And after his muscles went limp, Robert threw his body to the cement floor. Following the murder, they hacked off Michael's limbs with butcher knives. But instead of burying the body in plastic bags, this time they dumped his body parts into a 55-gallon plastic barrel and filled it with hydrochloric acid. And as John went to close the lid, he had one problem. Michael's foot stuck out of the top. And no matter how much John pushed on the lid, he couldn't close it all the way. So he ended up hacking off his right foot to secure the lid in place. And then they just left the barrel in the garage and locked the door. They then returned to Nicole's house and ransacked it, searching for any valuables they could sell. And they were mainly on the lookout for Michael's wallet. They wanted his identification and bank information so they could access his government benefits. But they never found it. They then took the rest of his belongings so it looked like Michael had robbed Nicole. And when she got home, she found Michael's wallet underneath a mattress. While the rest of Michael's friends thought he had moved to Goolwa, Nicole suspected foul play. If Michael had robbed her and fled, why would he leave his wallet behind? John and Robert found out that Nicole had found Michael's wallet. So they coerced Michael's friend, Frederick Brooks, to call Nicole in a weak attempt to get a hold of it. He said he was a friend of Michael and he desperately needed his wallet back. But Nicole sensed that something fishy was going on and told the caller that she wanted her things back and she wanted Michael to come and see her personally. But of course, this never happened. The calls continued, but Nicole resisted. And once Frederick even tried to lure her to a park, saying that Michael was with him. Another caller once claimed to be Michael himself but she was able to tell the difference in the caller's voice. After every failed attempt, John and Robert gave up, but their apprentice Jamie was able to convince her to hand the wallet over. 
Nicole had enough of the games, and although she knew there was something wrong with Michael's disappearance, her alarms eventually faded away. She might have sensed that something terrible could happen to her the more she resisted, and luckily, she didn't end up on John's wall of spiders. Before we continue with John's next victims, we're going to take a quick ad break and we'll be right back. The next name that was the center of John's wall of spiders was Barry Lane. Even after the years of being John's neighbor and even helping him take care of Clinton Trezice's body, Barry Lane would never be in John's good graces. Not only did John not like him for being a homosexual, but he also found out that Barry had told his mother and John's wife, Veronica, about the murder of Clinton. So John knew he couldn't be trusted, especially after the accusations of Barry molesting a local boy in Salisbury North. John had pinned Barry's name to the center of the wall and began plotting his murder. In the meantime, Barry began dating an 18-year-old named Thomas Trevelyan, a troubled man who suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. Thomas had convinced himself that he was in the military, and he always wore military fatigues and carried a knife with him. And in his delusions, he often talked about how the Grim Reaper followed him everywhere and was ready to take his life at any minute. At a social gathering, Thomas overheard John going on about his hatred for pedophiles, and Thomas approached him and confided in John how Barry had sexually abused him when he was younger. And now in John's eyes, Barry was now fair game. On October 17, 1997, John, Robert, and Thomas went to pick up Barry for what seemed to be a casual social outing. When they got to his house, they jumped Barry, wrestled him to the ground, and handcuffed him. They began beating, strangling, and torturing Barry like they had done with their previous victims. But John had a different plan this time. To cover his tracks, John brought the landline telephone over to Barry and forced him to call his mother. He told her that he was cutting off all ties with her and moving to Queensland. And to cover their tracks even further, John brought a tape recorder with him, and he taped Barry telling the bogus story of how he was moving to Queensland. And after he was through, John, Robert, and Thomas took turns holding Barry down while the other would take a pair of pliers and crush his toes. They also peeled back his toenails and plucked them from each toe before crushing the bones. And when they were through with the torture, Robert wrapped a rope around Barry's throat and began the ritual of strangling. John screamed his typical accusations at Barry, calling him a disgusting pedophile while he slowly slipped into death. Once he was dead, they then laid his body on a Persian rug and rolled him up, and then they just left him for several days. They eventually returned to retrieve his body and hacked his body parts into small pieces and dumped him in a plastic barrel filled with hydrochloric acid. And they kept him right next to Michael's body in John's garage. A week later, a friend of Barry's reported him missing and told police that Barry had told her about the murder of Clinton Trezice. But because of the bogus tape recording of Barry claiming he had moved to Queensland, the police didn't look into it any further. John laughed at how stupid they were. He felt invincible with five murders under his belt, and the police were none the wiser. But he didn't cover his tracks well enough. After Barry's death, Thomas moved in with Robert and his girlfriend Vicky, although Vicky immediately didn't get along with Thomas. One day she heard screaming from the backyard. 
And when she went to see what the commotion was, her son was screaming in terror as Thomas chased down a stray dog with a knife in his hand. Vicky was visibly upset with the living situation, but Thomas wouldn't be with them much longer. He was relieved that Barry was gone, but the guilt of his murder and the fear of John Bunting began bothering him. Thomas, who was already prone to paranoia, still believed that the Grim Reaper would kill him. But now he had to deal with his paranoia surrounding John. If John could quickly kill somebody and get away with it, he realized John could do the same to him. So in an erratic confession to his cousin, Thomas told him everything that had happened. The torture, the phone call to Barry's mother, and the strangulation. This was unknown to the rest of the group, but John had a strong gut feeling that Thomas would spill the beans. John told the rest of his crew that Thomas might go mental and rat on everybody. So he quickly convinced them that they had to take care of Thomas in order to preserve the deranged vigilante lifestyle they had built. And John had the perfect plan for Thomas. He knew he had tried to commit suicide at least once before, so he set the stage for a fake suicide. In November of 1997, John, Jamie, and Robert drove Thomas deep into the Adelaide Hills. They tied a noose around his neck and made him stand on a wooden box. They then kicked the wooden box out from underneath him and watched him die. His legs kicked in the air and he gripped at his neck, but it was no use. Even after his body was found on November 5th, 1997, hanging from the branch of an oak tree, police assumed that Thomas had killed himself since he had previously attempted suicide. And with that, the police didn't look into his death any further. With the police being absolutely clueless, John was in no rush to end his murder spree. By 1998, he had complete confidence he could kill without ever being caught. Yet his next victim wasn't on his wall of spiders. The next victim wasn't even a homosexual or an alleged pedophile. He was a heroin addict named Gavin Porter. Gavin was a 29-year-old schizophrenic who had bounced between mental institutions from an early age. And with nowhere to go after his last day, he befriended Jamie, who then welcomed him into John and Elizabeth's home, but they made him sleep in his car parked in the driveway. Although Gavin wasn't on John's typical list of suspects, there was one thing that didn't sit right with him. Gavin started using heroin while they lived together in Murray Bridge. Not only that, but Jamie had become addicted to heroin as well. John Bunting never drank, smoked, or used any drugs. And although he tolerated Gavin's use of heroin at first, he finally drew the line one day when he sat down on their living room couch and a dirty needle pricked him from the cushions. Infuriated, John had had enough. But before he did anything to Gavin, he made sure to figure out his banking information, knowing that Gavin was getting disability money from the government. In April of 1998, John invited Robert over to begin the process. They went out to Gavin's car late in the night, where he was asleep in the back seat. They flung open the doors and tried pulling him out of the vehicle. But Gavin quickly grabbed a screwdriver from the floor and stabbed John in the middle of his hand, through flesh and bone. John stifled a scream and worked through the pain, and Robert quickly wrapped a noose around Gavin's neck and cinched it tight. And they pinned him down on his back, in the back seat of his car. And after beating him in the ribs, stomach and groin, Robert strangled him to death as John hovered over him, 
watching the life escape his eyes. They dragged the body into the garage where they left it on the cement floor. Riding his high, John thought it was time to show Jamie his work. Jamie had seen his work on TV and what he had done to stray animals, but he hadn't seen the real thing yet. So John brought Jamie into the garage where he showed him the body of his friend, Gavin Porter. Rather than being impressed, Jamie was horrified. Who couldn't make sense of it? Gavin was his friend, and Jamie thought that John only went after pedophiles. With Jamie staring in horror, John went over to the two plastic barrels and opened the lids, showing Jamie the mutilated bodies of Barry Lane and Michael Gardner soaking in acid. The stench was so sickening, Jamie gagged and vomited. John, on the other hand, couldn't smell anything, and he smiled in pride as he showed Jamie his life's work. Jamie became so terrified of John that he promised he wouldn't tell anyone and he even agreed to go along with John's plan of collecting Gavin's social security payments. And like the others, John hacked Gavin's body to bits and placed his parts in a plastic barrel filled with hydrochloric acid. Now three barrels sat in John's garage. He knew their system was working well and he had no reason to change course. But unknown to the group, police had noticed a series of ATM withdrawals coming from Barry Lane's bank account and they had set up a surveillance camera that caught Robert making the withdrawals. And just as John thought his reign of terror was untouchable, the police caught their first major lead. Despite this, John and his crew continued on, and now he had Jamie within his sacred ring of culprits, and he wanted to take Jamie to the next level. He was now impressionable enough to join them, but John knew it would take a personal vendetta to get Jamie on board with the murders. So Troy Ude became the next target. Troy, a 21-year-old, was Jamie's half-brother that lived with them in Murray Bridge. Years before, Jamie had told John about the time Troy had sexually abused him when they were younger, and that was the only piece of evidence needed for John. In August of 1998, armed with makeshift clubs and jack handles, Robert, John, Mark, Hayden, and Jamie snuck into Troy's room while he was sleeping. They then began beating him with their weapons until he couldn't fight back, and Jamie just watched in horror from the corner of the room, gripping his club in fear. When Troy was finally bloodied and bruised to the point of exhaustion, they dragged him from his bed and carried him into the bathroom and dropped him in the tub. John then pulled out the tape recorder and he demanded that Troy call them each Sir, God, Master, and Chief Inspector. He then clamped a pair of pliers to his big toe and threatened to snap his bones if he called them by their real names. He then pushed the recorder to Troy's mouth and got him to tell a made-up story about how he was moving away to Perth. These recordings would eventually be known as the Voices of the Dead. Using a program called SoundForge, John would use these recordings to send to the victims' families and friends. John also began playing the song, Selling the Drama, by the band Live. Its lyrics are about Catholic priests using their status to molest young boys. Robert then wrapped a rope around Troy's neck, and even Jamie helped him. Although terrified, the peer pressure and intensity of the situation compelled him to participate, and the memory of his sexual assault fueled the flames. The process that Robert and John carried out so many times before was new to Jamie, and he watched his brother slowly die by strangulation as John screamed in his face, yelling swear words and accusations. 
Jamie saw the look of pure joy across John's face as Troy wilted away. As they released him and looked down at his body, John's only regret was not being more creative with the murder. Beating and strangling Troy was too simple, and although the killing brought him joy, it was also a bore. So he promised himself the next time he would bring more creative forms of torture to the table. And as they moved Troy's body to the floor, John ordered Jamie to kick the dead body in the chest to test his loyalty. And Jamie did without any hesitation. They then carried the body towards the garage where the three other bodies had been stored. Robert, Mark, and Jamie all commented on the overpowering smell that came from the garage. Although John couldn't smell it, he believed it was bad. He knew he had to do something about it, or the neighbors might complain. As they dropped the body into the garage, Jamie was still shocked at what he had just done. But his guilt quickly dissipated when he realized he could now use Troy's social security payments towards heroin, and Troy's murder would soon be forgotten. As months carried on, police only had a few missing persons reports and a handful of leads on social security fraud, and John's killing frenzy was nowhere close to its end. By this time, with eight murders behind him, John had created his own language regarding his operations. He called people he didn't like wastes, and pedophiles were rock spiders. Drug addicts, alcoholics, and people who ate too much were dirties. And people he wanted to kill needed to go to the clinic. When he wanted to kill someone, he wanted to play. And after he killed them, they were made good. And as for himself, he referred to his murders as making smurfs, because first they go blue, then they go poo-poo. After the murder of Troy, John grew a strong disliking towards Mark Hayden's wife Elizabeth. John suspected that Mark had told her about what was going on, so he kept an eye on her, and she quickly became one of his dirties. But instead of targeting her, he set his sights on her nephew, Frederick Brooks. Fred was an intellectually disabled 18-year-old. He was the son of Jody Elliott, who was Elizabeth Hayden's sister. Jody and her son Fred moved to South Australia to be closer to her sister in 1997. And within a year, John had added Fred's name to his wall of spiders. Somewhere along the way, he had convinced himself that Fred was a pedophile that liked feeling up young girls. He was a rock spider that needed to go to the clinic. In September of 1998, Fred was accepted into the Air Force cadets, so John knew he had to strike before Fred left town. So on September 17, 1998, John, Robert, and Jamie invited Fred over to John's house. Fred had also been invited to a party that night, but John knew how to lure him over. He told Fred they would commit a break and enter that night, knowing Fred couldn't refuse a good crime. And when Fred arrived at John's house, they made him put on a pair of handcuffs, telling him it was a test. If he got caught by police, they wanted to see if he could break out of handcuffs. But after they put the handcuffs on Fred, he immediately knew something was wrong. The look in their eyes changed from friend to foe. And as John swung the first fist, the hours of torture began. After beating him senselessly, they stripped the clothes off Fred. They dropped him into the bathtub where they burned him with lit cigarettes, placing them in his nose and ears. John also lit a cigarette lighter long enough so the metal at the top heated up to branding temperatures, and he set the metal down on Fred's forehead, leaving behind a smiley face burn mark. Fred screamed in agony and begged them to stop, but the torture had only just begun. 
John had told himself that his next kill would be more creative, so he stayed true to his promise. After burning Fred's nipples, John told Jamie to bring him the Variac Transformer. It was a machine that could adjust AC voltage with the turn of a knob, and from the machine ran a cord, and at the end of the cord were two metal clamps. John attached these to Fred's genitals, grabbed the Variac machine, and cranked the knob. The voltage sent a grueling shock straight into Fred's testicles, and as he screamed, his voice began to shatter. His vocal cords made a raspy sound as he yelled at the top of his lungs. And when he was done with the Variac machine, he moved on to his next tool, a set of sparklers. As Robert held Fred in the bathtub, John took the metal handle of the sparkler and needled it into Fred's urethra. He pushed the sparkler down until the combustible part reached the tip of his penis. And like a boy discovering his new favorite toy, John took the lighter and lit the end of the sparkler. And they all laughed and watched the sparkler burn all the way to the hilt, where it roasted the tip of his penis. John, Robert, and Jamie were so thrilled by the torture experiment, they did it again with a second sparkler. And for the last antic, John took a syringe filled with water and actually pierced one of Fred's testicles and injected the fluid into his scrotum. It was at this point that Fred finally succumbed to the torture and died. Streams of blood poured from his wounds alongside dozens of bruises and burns. They then dumped Fred's body into a car later on and took him to Mark Hayden's house for storage. In the meantime, John knew he needed a new place to store his barrels. The stink from his garage kept growing, and he had no more room for storage. In his search for a new place to store the bodies, he found an old abandoned state bank in rural Snowtown. This town sits on the low range of hills in the middle of flat farmland. The small town gives an aura of an old-timey, easygoing, simple city. The folks don't bother much, and they don't like to be bothered. It's a sleepy village where wheat farms cover the valleys, and only a few hundred residents populate the area. They live in generally cheap housing in a town with little to no work outside of agriculture. Many migrate to the bigger cities to find work and education, leaving Snowtown behind. So much so that not even the local bank survived. So John found a good deal on renting the vacant state bank. It was a two-story red brick building. Inside it had a bank vault door four inches thick, and he figured it could be the perfect place to store his barrels. But before he could bother with relocating the bodies, his urge to kill took number one priority and moving the bodies could wait. After the escalating torture methods used on Fred Brooks, compared to his previous victims, John couldn't wait any longer for his next kill. The high he got from torturing and killing people is the only thing that mattered. Even his ideology of killing pedophiles or homosexuals took a back seat, as he was ready to kill anyone that crossed his path. One afternoon in October of 1998, John and Jamie sat in a car, hanging out in Murray Bridge. They saw a man limping across the street in front of them. His hand was up against his chest and he hobbled along the pavement. His name was Gary O'Dwyer, a 29-year-old man who previously survived a near-fatal car accident five years ago, leaving him both physically and mentally disabled. In 1998, he left his foster home and moved into John Bunting's neighborhood. They didn't know if he was an alleged pedophile or homosexual, but they knew he was probably on disability pension by the way he walked and talked. 
John figured this would be their next victim, as they could make more money through their social security fraud. And he had nobody high on the list of his wall of spiders. And he mentioned to Jamie that Gary looked similar to Troy Yude, hoping this would spark some fury in him. So Jamie befriended Gary over the next few weeks, and he convinced Gary to invite John Robert over for drinks at his house on Francis Street. It seemed like a casual social gathering at first, and they poured drinks and hung around the living room. Gary was thrilled to have people visit since his disabilities had made it much harder to make new friends. But midway through a conversation, John stood up from the couch and signaled over to Robert. Robert immediately responded and grabbed Gary from behind in a chokehold, and they wrestled him to the ground in the middle of the living room. After handcuffing him, they used the same methods of torture they had used on Fred Brooks. They bound him, beat him, and electrocuted his testicles with the Variac machine. Even though he wasn't a suspected pedophile, John treated him like the others. Instead of killing him after the torture sequence, they left him handcuffed on his living room floor, and they returned later that night to finish the job. Gary died in the same fashion, gasping for air as John screamed obscenities in his face, and Gary had become the tenth victim on John's killing spree. They then chopped his body into several pieces, stored him in a barrel, but John's garage had no more space left. So Gary's body was taken to Mark Hayden's house, and as the tangled web of bodies and accomplices grew, things got more complicated. John began having an affair with Jody Elliott, the mother of Fred Brooks. She began suspecting that something heinous was going on with John and his friends, especially after her son disappeared. She also lived in the rear of Mark Hayden's house, which was the new location they were storing bodies. And she had also helped John collect Suzanne Allen's social security payments. John told Jamie that he had begun sleeping with Jody, only to keep her quiet. He also called Jody the village idiot. So to cover his tracks, John told his girlfriend Elizabeth that he had found work as a truck driver, and that's why he spent so much time away from home. And he got Jamie to drive him back and forth from his hookups with Jody Elliott in Adelaide. But the web of lies and mischief began crumbling, and John eventually found out that Mark told his wife Elizabeth Hayden about the murders. And John knew he had to take her to the clinic. He couldn't trust her. His next murder was less about satisfaction or collecting anyone's pension. It was about self-preservation. So on November 20th, 1998, John convinced Jody to take Mark into the city for a few hours. He then invited Robert over to Mark Hayden's house in Adelaide, where they jumped her, bound her, and threw her in the bathtub and strangled her to death. It was quick compared to the other victims, and no antics were at play. John simply needed to kill her. And like the others, they butchered her body into pieces and stuffed her in a barrel. And when Mark returned home, he asked where his wife was. John told him an elaborate story about how she tried to make sexual advances towards him, and when he denied her, she stormed out of the house. And even though Mark suspected him of lying, he was loyal to John, and he wasn't going to push it. The next day, Elizabeth's brother, Garyon Sinclair, reported her missing since Mark hadn't done it. Her brother didn't believe the contradictory stories that Mark told him, and he knew his sister wouldn't have left her two children behind. With suspicions high, there were immediate problems at hand. They now had eight barrels with dead bodies in them, and storing them in John's garage or Mark's property wasn't going to work. So they piled most of the barrels into Mark's Toyota Land Cruiser, and they then drove the Land Cruiser out to a friend's property in Adelaide Plains near the Clare Valley, 
When John's friends noticed him putting large barrels into the car, he explained that they were kangaroo carcasses they'd killed while hunting. Soon after they moved the bodies, police arrived at Mark Hayden's property, finding it suspicious that Mark never filed a missing persons report for his wife. They also linked Mark to his friends Robert and John, who they had suspected were somehow involved with the disappearance of Barry Lane. The police were finally catching on, but as they rifled through Mark Hayden's property, they didn't find a trace of Elizabeth or Barry. The only suspicious thing worth noting was that Mark's Land Cruiser wasn't there. So they circulated its plates, numbers, and description. A few months went by and the bodies remained at the friend's property in Adelaide Plains. They called John and told him they were moving to Snowtown, and John begged them to take the barrels with them. They agreed, but only if he came and got them soon, as the smell was unbearable. Quickly, Robert and John took a trip to Snowtown and signed the lease for the abandoned bank and the adjacent house. They then collected the barrels from their friend's property and moved them into the bank vault, one by one. As the new year came around, the gang of felons thought they were in the clear. The police had found no trace of the bodies and they were quietly sitting in plastic barrels, filled with hydrochloric acid in a dark, abandoned bank vault, sealed behind a four-inch thick door. Following the disappearance of her sister Elizabeth, Jody Elliott suffered a nervous breakdown in January 1999. She was admitted to Adelaide Psychiatric Facility, where she allegedly kept a porcelain doll by the name of Jody Bunting. And John was glad to have Jody out of the picture. He thought of her situation as a problem that solved itself. After the police snooped so close to their operations, John Bunting and his gang took a break. Six months had passed since the murder of Elizabeth Hayden. But like any addict, John needed to murder again. His new target was Jamie's stepbrother, David Johnson. David was 24 years old and liked to keep himself clean and proper. John didn't like him because he thought he was a yuppie and didn't have much more justification than that. He didn't need it. He no longer hid behind the veil of a vigilante killing pedophiles. He really just wanted to kill again. On May 9th, 1999, Jamie lured his stepbrother to the abandoned bank in Snowtown. He told him he had found a cheap computer for sale that David was interested in. But right as David entered the building, he realized there was no computer for sale. Robert hid inside the bank's front door, and right as David walked in, he wrapped a rope around his neck and subdued him. He put his weight down on David and brought him to the floor, and unknown to the group, this would be their last murder. And they made their last hurrah as violent as they possibly could. Like veterans to the killing process, they went through the motions. The beatings and torture commenced, and they got David to tell his bogus story into the tape recorder. After he was through, John blasted a mixtape he had made. One of his favorite songs, Selling the Drama, played at full volume, deafening the screams of David Johnson as they electrocuted his genitals. As loud as he screamed, no one could hear him. The streets of Snowtown were quiet and empty. And after getting his banking information, they strangled him to death and took his wallet. Robert Wagner also cut a piece of flesh from David's corpse before dismembering the body, cramming it into a barrel, and joining it with the rest of the barrels within the bank vault. Scrounging for money, John and Robert went to withdraw some of David's money from an ATM in Port Wakefield, but an error message read across the screen, and the machine printed out a receipt saying, not authorized, cancelled. They shrugged, thinking David had no money in his account. So they returned to Robert's house in Adelaide where they carried out one last ritual as a team. 
They all took a bit of flesh from David's body, cooked it up in a frying pan, and ate it. And this would be the last heinous thing they could do before the police finally put an end to the madness. By the time the gang had killed David Johnson, police had captured them on surveillance cameras and began tapping their phones. Through the help of local Snowtown Peace Police, they found the Land Cruiser at the house next to the abandoned bank. And on May 20th, 1999, police finally raided the abandoned bank, finding eight barrels inside the vault. And when police opened the barrels to see what was inside, the hands and feet of the victims floated to the top. They bobbled at the surface of the acid bath, and they were pale, white, and shriveled. But they hadn't decomposed very much. Although the bodies were stored in acid, they were essentially mummified by hydrochloric acid. John might have thought that the acid would slowly dissolve the bodies, but it did exactly the opposite. It preserved them. If they had used nitric acid or sulfuric acid, it would have done a better job of dissolving the bodies. But John either didn't know what he was doing or purposely wanted to keep the body parts intact. Police also found knives, a blood-stained saw, a double-barrel shotgun, coils of rope, rolls of duct tape, rubber gloves, and a variac machine. And after police raided the bank vault, they searched John's old house on Waterloo Corner three days later. And in the backyard, they found the remains of Ray Davies and Suzanne Allen wrapped in plastic bags. During all the police findings, John Bunting, Robert Wagner, James Velasikis, and Mark Hayden were all arrested and later tried for murder. Elizabeth Harvey, Jamie's mother and John's girlfriend, was also going to be put on trial because she knew about the murders and even participated at one point. But she died of cancer before a trial could take place. Jamie was the first to be sentenced, and he pleaded guilty to four of the murders in which he participated. And on June 21, 2001, he was given four life sentences with a non-parole period of 26 years. In 2004, Mark Hayden was convicted of five accounts of assisting in the murders, but the jury could not come to a decision on the two murder charges against him. He was sentenced to 25 years in prison, but was never convicted of murder He applied for parole in 2017, but was denied, and he recently applied for parole again in 2021. John Bunting and Robert Wagner were tried together. The Supreme Court trial began on October 14, 2002. Three of the jurors withdrew from the trial because of how horrific the details were, and the trial lasted 11 months, had 227 witnesses, and cost $15 million. It was also one of the longest trials in Australian history. It eventually ended on September 8, 2003, and John was convicted of 11 murders while Robert was convicted of seven. The murder charges concerning Suzanne Allen were dropped on May 7, 2007, when the jury couldn't reach a verdict. And after the initial trial, John was given 11 life sentences, and Robert was given seven. Both were sentenced without the possibility of parole. The presiding judge, Justice Brian Martin, said that the two of them had killed for pleasure and that they could never genuinely be rehabilitated. Professor Kevin Howells, a forensic psychiatrist, believes that John Bunting fits the profile of a psychopathic killer who gets joy from controlling his victims. His behavior lacks emotion and he has no capacity for empathy. John and Robert are still considered Australia's worst serial killers. 
John Bunting, now age 55, and Robert Wagner, now age 50, spend every day in Yatala Prison, South Australia's maximum security prison in Adelaide, and they will live here for the rest of their days. The small city has never been able to shake the bad reputation, and even though only one of the murders happened there, they're still referred to as the Snowtown Murders. The townspeople have even considered changing the name of the town so they can finally move on from the history of mutilated corpses floating in barrels filled with acid. But even if they change the name, no one will forget the grisly scene found behind the abandoned bank vault door. But that concludes the horrific and very disturbing story of John Bunting and the Snowtown murders. Honestly, it's it's these cases where I'm just like, life in prison in, in Australia, I don't know exactly what that's like or what their maximum security prisons are like. I hope it'd be a pretty rough living, but you never know. I mean, some other countries' maximum security prisons certainly doesn't look like the maximum security prisons here in the United States. I mean, if it if it is like it, then, you know, being in one of those places is definitely not not fun by any mean. But, you know, when you've tortured so many people and killed people in such brutal ways, it's just like it's hard not to to think an eye for an eye is the only suitable punishment here. But I really don't know what else to say about this one. I mean, it's just a absolutely horrific serial killer. I mean, he's absolutely evil, I think, from the day he was born. And I feel so bad for what the victims all went through, the, the amount of torture and pain. Oh, I can't even imagine. I mean, it's just it's hard to even do the, do these types of episodes because I'm just sitting here thinking about how horrible that would yeah. be to have. Some moments I start getting a light headed a yeah. little bit because I'm like, Seriously. this is just fucked up. Like It's completely fucked. I mean, I just don't understand that, yeah, how like, people get to this point. How do you get to this point where you're doing these types of things to other human beings and you're getting enjoyment out of it. I mean, it's just, it's sick. And I think John Bunting and Robert Wagner, they had no hope coming back from all of that. The whole rehabilitation thing, like there was no way they were ever going to, to become like rehabilitated. Right. Because Mm. throughout the whole time, I mean, their, their torture methods just kept getting worse and worse. And soon things that they originally did wasn't good enough. And they weren't getting that same, yeah, you know, rush that they were getting the first time. So they kept uh, intensifying yeah. the the torture and the methods they used, and and if they never got caught, then they would have just continuing. Oh, to absolutely. get worse and worse. And I, I think they would have just kept on killing. I think mm-hmm. they were literally they thought they're invincible, and you know, I think it's when serial killers get to that point where they feel like they're above everything. They're smarter yeah. than the police. That eventually they slip up, or you know, their circles aren't as tight as they think they are, and people start start talking and giving away you know hints and clues and obviously i think i think the biggest sort of downfall to their operation was the atms you know withdrawals Mm -hmm. and the police started tracking all of this social security fraud i think is what ultimately led the police to figure out that there was more going on than just that and obviously discovering the barrels in the the abandoned bank i mean I, i think if they had just stuck to to killing that and not gone and tried to take money out i think that this would have went on for much much longer yeah. which thank god it didn't because the body count probably would be double or triple what it was because i think these guys also i mean as you saw like it started out for john this was a mission to rid the world of pedophiles and and homosexuals that you know he thought were one and the same which is 
insane. Yeah. And so I think, you know, the fact that he evolved from that mindset to just literally killing anybody that seemed like an easy target, that would have gotten worse and worse and worse. And yeah. I mean, it's crazy that this is this guy is and not surprising that he is Australia's worst serial killer, along with Robert Wagner and and Jamie took part in it and you know I just I you know nobody despite you know what you do I don't nobody deserves to die in these horrific ways I mean it's just no. it's horrible it's absolutely horrible and some of these you know some of these people ah oh, just the the very end I mean I can't even imagine what that must have been like and just how horrible that would have been yeah so I'm just going to go ahead and leave it there that is the Snowtown murders I'd be interested to hear from any of you in Australia, you know, if a, you heard about these, I'm, you know, I'm sh- I mean, I guess it would depend on what age you were uh, when they happened, but I'd be curious to hear some of your guys' thoughts on this and how it impacted the country. And I'm sure this was like all over the news and, you know, this was a huge, huge case that, you know, was, I couldn't even imagine how disturbing it was for everybody to, to hear about John Bunting and his gang. So let us know in the comments your your thoughts on this one and and yeah i'm gonna leave it at that we'll see you guys on another episode of lights out podcast until next time lights out everybody